Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. We've come in our study in Exodus to um, the high point that I'd planned on as we started this series, uh, um, our Easter message, coinciding Easter with the story of the last plague, the Passover, uh, um, the Passover feast. So I want to begin by reading to you a very small portion of Luke chapter 22. It's just the first verse. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. The, the events that we know as Easter unfolded at the time of the celebration of the Jewish feast of Passover. And the question is, why did Jesus choose this season? Why this feast to allow himself to be taken and to be crucified? Of course, we know from the story that the, the Pharisees had tried numerous times to kill him before this time, but scripture um, often comments that Jesus wouldn't permit it, for it wasn't his time. He often said, the hour has not come. But on this occasion, he allowed it. And the question is, why now? Why this feast? There were other significant feast seasons and days. There was the Feast of Pentecost. There was a Feast of Tabernacles. Why not the great and solemn day of atonement? Uh, that was regarded as the, the holiest day of the sacred Jewish calendar. It was the day that the high priest went alone in behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies to offer atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. Surely that would have been a great option and the symbolism would have been plain and stark. And yet it was not the day or the season that Jesus chose. Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem and allow his crucifixion at the Passover. Now, all through this series, I have made reference to the long shadows that the book of Exodus has cast over Israel's history. Remember, Moses had prophesied that Israel would uh, forego their loyalty to Yahweh, Yahweh and would play the harlot, and ultimately that God would reject them and would send them into exile. And that happened, of course, when the northern tribe called Israel were carried off into Assyrian captivity. And then 150 years later, the southern tribes called Judah were carried off into Babylonian exile. Moses had not only prophesied the exile of Israel, he'd also prophesied a second exodus, a time when they would be released from their captivity. And Israel's prophets, particularly Isaiah, picked up on this idea of a second exodus and, and developed it and amplified it powerfully. They spoke of a second prophet deliverer, one like Moses, who would come and who would initiate this much longed for second exodus. Of course, we know the Jews at the time of Jesus were back in their land, but they still regarded themselves as being in exile, even though they were in the land, because they were under, under the heel of foreign powers. At this time, it was Rome, but there had been a succession of foreign powers, and they had never been in control of their own destiny. They considered themselves at this point as the tail and not the head. And they knew that exile would not be over until that were reversed and they were head and their enemies were the tail. And they prayed for and longed for that Messiah deliverer who would come and bring about that second exodus. Then enter Jesus of Nazareth. And I can't help thinking of um, that little 
Christmas clip that we played a few years ago from St. Paul's Church in Auckland where the little boy kept saying, and they weren't expecting that. Well, when Jesus of Nazareth came, they weren't expecting that. His ministry brought freedom to the oppressed, release to the captives. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we've considered that passage where Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration met with Moses and with Elijah and spoke about the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, when you go back to the original story in Exodus, you can see why Jesus was very careful to choose the Feast of Passover for his great triumphant act of deliverance. And with that as an introduction, what I'd like to do is to go back to uh, the text of Exodus and, and look at it and see it foreshadowing what happened at Easter. See it as a type of the Easter events. Now, we've considered up until the series, uh, in the series, how Egypt had been battered by nine plagues that had basically brought it to its knees. And yet, in spite of that, Pharaoh remains obstinate and unmoved. And Proverbs chapter 29 is about to be his reality. It says, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. There remains one stroke for Pharaoh and one more for Egypt. And Exodus chapter 11 and chapter 12 deal with that one stroke. Now, rather than read those two chapters, what I plan to do is read the first six verses of chapter 11, and then I'll kind of paraphrase chapter 12. So chapter 11, verse 1 starts, Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll send just one more disaster on Pharaoh and his land, and after that he will let you go. In fact, he will be so anxious to get rid of you that he will practically throw you out of the country. Tell all the men and women of Israel to ask their Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver jewelry. For God had caused the Egyptians to be very favorable to the people of Israel. And Moses was a very great man in the land of Egypt and was revered by Pharaoh's officials and the Egyptian people alike. Now Moses announced to Pharaoh, Yahweh says about midnight I will pass through Egypt and all of the oldest sons shall die in every family in Egypt. From the oldest child of Pharaoh's uh, Pharaoh, heir to his throne to the oldest child of his lowliest slave and even the firstborn of the animals. The wail of death will resound throughout the entire land of Egypt. Never before has there been such anguish and it will be never again. In chapter 12, God gives Moses specific instructions concerning the means of deliverance for the people of Israel. The heads of each household were to take a lamb of the first year without blemish. They were to take it on the 10th day of the month and keep it until the 14th day. And then it says at twilight or in the evening of the 14th day, and literally that means between the two evenings, the lamb was to be killed and its blood collected in a basin and sprinkled on the lintel and the two doorposts of the household door. The household was then to roast the lamb and eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and they were to eat it fully dressed and ready to leave Egypt in haste. At midnight, the death angel would pass through the land and smite the firstborn of every family, rich and poor alike, human and animals equally. The house that had blood on its doorposts would be, uh, would be passed over. The people were forbidden to go out of their houses until the Lord brought them forth after the death angel had passed over. And the rest of chapter 12 from verse 31 onwards records 
that, that event and the going out of the people from Egypt, and then the Lord instituting the Passover feast as a yearly celebration. So we're told that this final plague will target the firstborn in chapter 11, verse 5. And a strike against the firstborn was a dramatic way, uh, uh, so dramatic, in, in fact, that it's kind of hard for us in our culture, far removed from theirs, to understand. The law of primogenitor prevailed in Egypt, as it did in most ancient cultures, including that of Israel. And and just as an aside, the fact that the Bible recalls it uh, and records it and, uh, and it was true of Israel, it prevailed in Israel, doesn't necessarily mean God endorses it. You know, the Bible uh, is a record that's full of many things that might be described as a true record of false ideals. Um, so, so, so even though this is a prevailing in, in, in the ancient world, it doesn't necessarily, as I say, mean that God's endorse, endorsement is on it. But in such a setting, the eldest son was the hope of each family. He was seen as the parent's stay and as the other children's guardian and protector. He represented the whole family. So judgment on the firstborn was, in fact, judgment on the whole family. Pharaoh's firstborn was known as Urpasutensa, the hereditary crown prince, and as such, the hope of the the dynasty rested on his shoulders. In chapter 12, the Passover is instituted and God tells Israel what they must do if they are to avoid the same fate as the people of Egypt. Now, what I plan to do is point out some of the features of this first Passover and of the yearly feast that was instituted and then draw parallels with it and in its typological and prophetic fulfillment in Jesus and the second exodus. The Easter events are powerfully prefigured and foreshadowed in this first Exodus Passover. So the first thing we note in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 2 is that Yahweh tells them that from now on, this month will be the first and most important of the entire year. Passover rearranged uh, Egypt's, uh, sorry, Israel's calendar. The feast actually fell in what was at that point in time the seventh month of their calendar, the civil year. But God said, no, from now on, you date your calendar from this event. So actually, after Passover, Israel functioned with two calendars, a civil calendar and a sacred calendar. And God changed their calendar on the basis of the theology of this event. Passover became the first month because it represented for them a completely new beginning. That phrase, the first day of the first month, is actually found in three other places, three other events in the scriptures, and all of them speak of a new beginning. So, for example, it's found in Genesis chapter 8, verse 13, where it says, Noah emerged from the ark to a renewed earth and a new beginning on the first day of the first month. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 2, the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month and a whole new way of worship and of God dwelling in the midst of the people was instituted and it happened first day, first month. Ezra, in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 9, began his return from Babylonian exile back to the land on the first day of the first month. So when you find that phrase, it speaks of new beginnings, new, a new start. And, and the Easter events constitute 
for us all a dramatic new beginning. So much so that N.T. Wright describes this new beginning as the day the revolution began. It's the beginning of God's long-promised new creation project. For those of us who are in Christ, we, we experience a new birth and are part of God's new creation. And all of that starts at, at Easter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 is a well-known verse. And, and it reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Just like for the people of Israel, Easter rearranges our calendar. The old has passed away and everything has become new. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3 tells the people they were to take the lamb on the 10th day. And in verse 6, it says they were to keep it until the 14th day when it was to be slain. Now, those four days on a practical level gave the people of Israel ample time to thoroughly inspect the lamb, ensuring, as per verse 5, that it was without blemish. It gave them enough time to find another animal if that one, the one they'd chosen, proved to be unsuitable. So this four-day period, it's an interesting thought, but scholars have spoken in different ways about what that four days may mean. Some have suggested, as 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 suggests, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Now, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 tells us that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world and wasn't manifest until 4,000 years later. So if a thousand years is as a day, four days later, after the Lamb is foreordained to be slain, he is manifest in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Others have suggested that the four days is roughly equivalent to the nearly four years of Jesus's public ministry, during which time the people could see that he was the Lamb of God without blemish. Others have examined the chronology of Jesus's Passion Week and have said that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month and was in Jerusalem during those four days when he was slain on the 14th day of the week. Now, whichever it is, those four days are obviously significant. Verse 5 tells us that this lamb that was kept for the four days had to be without blemish. And honestly, there is a series of messages that could be preached on what we might call the doctrine of the land. Let me just give you a little foretaste, a little whirlwind tour through the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 4, we have Abel's lamb. Remember, Abel offered an animal in contrast to Cain, who offers the fruit of the ground and had his offering rejected. And in Genesis chapter 4, we see the necessity of the lamb. In Genesis chapter 2, we have Abraham's lamb. And you'll remember the story how God provided a lamb uh, as a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac. So in the first, we have the necessity of the lamb. Here we have God's provision of the lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, the text that we're considering, we have the requirement that the lamb has to be slain. In Isaiah 53, we have the suffering of the lamb. And we are told that the lamb is not just an animal, but a person. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. So suddenly we see we've moved from an animal to a personality. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the lamb is identified. As John the Baptist points to Jesus, his cousin, and proclaims, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 we have the character of the lamb where Peter says he was without blemish which is exactly the terminology we are introduced to in Exodus chapter 12 he's without blemish and without spot Peter says and then of course in Revelation chapter 5 we have the enthronement of the lamb in Genesis 4 and 22 we have a lamb in place of a single individual in Exodus chapter 12 a lamb in place of a family In Isaiah 53, we have a lamb in place of many nations. In John chapter 1, he's a lamb for all the world. And in in Revelation chapter 5, he's a lamb for all eternity. There is just such richness in this idea of a lamb as you trace it through the scriptures. The character of the lamb is stressed and he must be or it must be without blemish. And in wonderful fulfillment of this requirement, all who inspected God's lamb, Jesus of Nazareth, found him to be without blemish and without sin. His enemies could find no fault in him. Both Pilate and Herod sent him back to the priests saying, he's not guilty of any crime. Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood in Matthew 27 verse 4. The dying thief says, he doesn't deserve what we deserve. He's innocent. The centurion at the foot of the cross says, surely this man is the son of God. And much more impressively, the disciples who walked with Jesus intimately for three and a half years spoke of him and said, as I quoted from Peter, he's a lamb without blemish and without spot. And Peter then went on to say he committed no sin, no guile was found in his mouth. 1 John chapter 3 verse 5 says, In him there is no sin. Jesus himself asserted his own sinlessness. In John chapter 8 verse 46 he said, Which of you convicts me of sin? Now I challenge any leader of any organization, nation, church to stand up before his people and say, Which of you convicts me without sin? None of us would get away with that. Our families would be the first to put their hands up. In John chapter 14, verse 30, he said, The ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. Jesus was truly without blemish, without spot. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 6, we are told that this lamb was to be slain on the 14th day at at twilight. Now, the Hebrew literally says between the two evenings. And Hebrew scholars suggest that that this time is between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Now, we know that the hours of crucifixion were between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Jesus died outside the city walls at the exact time that the Passover lamb was being slain just across town in the temple. The blood of the slain lamb was collected in a basin and then placed uh, and then taken. A hyssop plant was taken and it was used to sprinkle the blood on the two doorposts and on the lintel. A triune application of blood. Now, the hyssop plant was a, a lowly plant that was found pretty much anywhere and it was used in Israel's ceremonies for cleansing. It was used for the cleansing of, the, of uh, a leper. It was used for cleansing someone from the defilement of touching a dead body. In Psalm 51 verse 7, in that great repentant psalm, David had prayed, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And I don't think it's coincidental that at the cross, it's the hyssop plant that's soaked in vinegar and put up to Jesus' lips and offered to him on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 29. These are Passover echoes. 
So it wasn't enough that the lamb was slain. The blood had to be applied to the doorposts and the lintels. And this is what we call the obedience of faith. Without blood, Israel's firstborn was subject to exactly the same judgment as Egypt's firstborn. This deliverance is not about nationality or morality. It's not about who you were, who you are, or how good you have been. The only dividing line, Yahweh says, is when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, gives us a New Testament perspective on that when it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You know what? Anybody who had ventured out that night, trusting in their own merits, would would be in deep trouble. They could have gone out and said, honestly, I'm a good, kind person. I'm tolerant. I recycle. I care for the environment. I care for animals. I, I really think God will be impressed. Those things might be impressive to some and they might be needed, but they don't pay for sin. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 tells us only blood remits the sin. You know what? In Egypt that night, in every household, both Egyptian and Israeli, there was a death. It was either the death of the firstborn or it was the death of the lamb. Jesus shed his blood for the remission of sins, but it has to be applied to the doorposts of our lives by faith. We accept what he's done by faith or we pay for our sin by our own death. After the animal was slain and the blood was applied, the lamb was roasted with bitter herbs and eaten with unleavened bread. That that could be unpacked. Uh, it, it, it speaks of the agonies of the cross. It also speaks to us of the need to assimilate Jesus's life into ours. And if you're a student and you'd like to follow this through, John chapter 6, where Jesus shocked his disciples by saying, you need to eat my body and, and drink my blood. It might be um, profitable for you to go into that passage of scripture and meditate on it for a while. The lamb had to be eaten. You know, Justin Martyr, who was an ancient church father, he lived in 100 AD through to 165 AD, said that for the roasting of the Passover lamb, two wooden spits were used and were required, one longitudinal and one traverse at right angles to each other, for, forming a cross. Now, we don't have any biblical evidence for that, but Justin Marceau was certainly closer to the events than most of us were, and it's an interesting thought that the lamb was roasted on a cross. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, we're told that the bones of the lamb must not be broken. And the full significance of that would not have been realized at that first Passover. I think David had a hint of its meaning when he said in Psalm 34 verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He guards all of his, bo all of his bones, not one of them will be broken. But the ultimate fulfillment of that prophetic typological passage is uh, it awaited the cross, where in John chapter 19, it says in verse 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen and has testified, and his testament testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled not one of his bones shall be broken so the passover lamb 
not allowed its bones to be broken. Jesus' bones were not broken. The Israelites had to eat at midnight and, and be ready as soon as the feast was finished to, to leave Egypt in haste. So their loins were to be girded, their shoes were on their feet, their staff was in their hands. Now I could hear some of you saying, sounds like our place, we're always eating on the run. Sports shoes on, hockey sticks in hand. Um, in fact, more often than not, we actually eat on the journey. We eat in the car, of course, as God designed us to do. But they were, they were to be pushed out of Egypt in haste. They were not allowed to leaven their bread. They had to actually eat bread, unleavened bread for the next seven days. And again, there, there is much for a student of Scripture to unpack in this. Leaven in Scripture speaks of evil and corruption. Look at how Paul applies this type in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Don't you know how a little yeast can permeate the whole lump? Clear out every bit of the old yeast that you may be new unleavened bread. We Christians have had a Passover lamb sacrifice for us, none other than Christ himself. So let us keep the feast with no trace of the yeast of old life, nor the yeast of vice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of unadulterated truth. When we come to Christ, there is to be change in our lives. And this passage is speaking exactly about that. When Israel later entered the land of promise, another aspect of um, the feast of Passover was developed. And you can read it in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. So, so Passover is essentially made up of th three items. It, it is the Passover proper, the feast of unleavened bread, and the third thing that was added in Leviticus is the feast of first fruits. Passover happened at the beginning of the barley harvest when they were in the land. And on the third day, after the Passover lamb had been sacrificed, someone was sent out into the nearly ripe barley harvest and they took one sheaf of barley from it and took it back to the priest. It was called the sheaf of first fruits. This one sheaf was taken by the priest and then waved ceremonially before the Lord. That one sheaf was representative and symbolic of a whole harvest that was about to come. Now, Paul develops this thought powerfully in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, when he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruit of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now through resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first fruits of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Just as Jesus was slain at the exact point in time when the Passover lamb was being slain in the temple, imagine on the third day, the third day after the lamb was sacrificed, the sheaf of first fruits, the waving of the sheaf of first fruits took place. I imagine that just as the priest that early that morning was waving the sheaf of first fruits before the Lord, that the ground underneath him began to tremble. An earthquake had taken place, a la Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, as an angel rolls back the stone of the great tomb, and the tomb is opened, and the fulfillment of the feast of first fruits comes up before the Lord.
Jesus died at the feast of Passover and initiated the much long prophesied and much hoped for second exodus. The greater than Moses had come. Slavery to sin has been broken and the new creation project has launched. The day the revolution began. The Lord has risen and the response has to be he has risen indeed. Seriously, this is just a cursory glance at this chapter and its wonderful fulfillment. Exodus 11 and 12 are wonderfully, powerfully fulfilled in in, in the Easter events. And this Easter, I want to wish you the very best, um, but but essentially that it be a Christ-filled day, that you you rejoice in the fact that the first fruits have been waved before the Lord, and it's your guarantee that in his time, at his moment, we also will share in the resurrection of Christ. So he is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.